you're not sure 100% in your heart that you want to play in an orchestra, you have to consider that you're not going to because you won't. You won't play in an orchestra if you're not 100% dedicated because for every person like you who's not 100% there, there are 10 who are 100% there and even they might not get the job. Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 167 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists. Today's episode of the show is part four of a series guest hosted by Joel Jaffe, and his guest today is actually me. I'm, of course, the host of the Clarinet Podcast here and also another show called OK Podcast. I'm the online sales and marketing manager for Baku Musical Services and Lasky Mouthpieces, clarinet faculty at Mount Royal University in Calgary, and a performing and recording and teaching artist in the Calgary area. I discuss some of my passions outside of music, ranging from cars to cooking. I share some details about my life and the life-altering injury I had in 2016, which did change the course of my clarinet career, what it's like working with a major clarinet manufacturer day-to-day, having a family as a musician, and much, much more. So this is uh, really fun to talk to Joel. It's always nice to have the, the uh, mic turned around on me for a chance to share some of my stories on the podcast here. And I do want to give a huge shout out to Joel. I think he's done a great job on the previous few episodes here, um, interviewing Denise Ganey and Diane Barger and, uh, and um, Jessica Phillips. And he's got some more episodes planned because this has been received pretty well. And uh, I think he's doing a really great job. So thank you so much to Joel for, for stepping in and uh, really helping out during this busy time for my family. We've got a really young, less than three-month-old daughter here, and it's uh, been definitely a challenge. And it's been nice to actually listen to the podcast a bit with fresh ears. I just think he's doing a great job. So thanks so much to Joel. Before we get started with today's episode, I do just want to add a quick note. And that is that at the end, uh, Joel asked me some question. And my response was basically to say that I was thankful for... Uh, for world peace that we have and prosperity. And um, I don't want it to seem like I'm ignorant of world events. Obviously, I know the horrible situation that we are now finding ourselves in. Um, but I also don't want to rescind my statement because I think that it makes sort of a point about how the uh, the state of the world is rather fragile. And I think really that... Um, you know, my my statement was true at the time this was recorded from my perspective anyway. So um, I don't want to seem like I'm being insensitive. So please take that for what it is. But uh, obviously, I do not condone um, what's happening right now. And uh, in any sense, I'm never re- really condoning violence. That's always wrong, in my opinion. But, um, you know, I, I really think that I don't want to appear insensitive to this situation. But uh, so please understand that as you listen. But otherwise, I do hope that you enjoy today's episode. I want to also thank quickly our, our sponsors for making the show possible and also those who support the show directly. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do this at clarinet.com join. And you can get a free trial of the Clarinet Gold Edition uh, by using code TRYGOLD, that's T-R-Y-G-O-L-D, at clarinet.com join. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, thank you so much again to Joel for hosting today's episode. The new Bakun Q-Series clarinet features a completely redesigned bore inspired by the Bakun Custom Series clarinets. This means you can play and perform like the pros, but for less. Use code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com to save 10% on your entire purchase and try the Bakun Q-Series or Protégé clarinet risk-free for 30 days. Just pay the return shipping if you aren't fully satisfied. Shop now at bakunmusical.com and use code CLARINET at checkout. Imagine a read that lets you focus on your music, lasts for months instead of days, and even saves you money in the long run. It's all possible with Legere Reads, the world's leading synthetic read brand made right here in Canada. The European cut read is preferred by Legere artists all over the world, including Eddie Daniels, David Schifrin, Crowder Giuffredi, and many others. It offers a warm, clean sound with a great ease of articulation and is now available for E-flat, B-flat, and the bass clarinet. Learn more at your local music store or at Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E dot com. So I'm here today on the podcast with Joel Jaffe, who's coming to me today from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Joel, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, you were on the podcast several years ago, and we did talk about a lot of really interesting things. And little did I know back then that I would someday... Um, start working for Bakun and doing some of those sort of same interesting things. But um, do go check that out. He talked a lot about travel tips for musicians and uh, what it's like working day to day at Bakun. And uh, but Joel, what's have you been up to the last? I guess it's been four years. And how have things changed for you? Well, certainly for me, things have changed most dramatically during COVID, where my travel schedule came to a screeching halt. Um, Previous to that, I was on planes, trains, and automobiles almost 
let's say 200,000, 220,000 miles a year um, out of the country, about 200 days of the year, traveling internationally uh, to represent Bakun and grow our brand and also onboard a new company that Bakun acquired in 2019, the Lasky Mouthpiece Company. A lot of our listeners are um, instrumentalists, but clarinet players specifically. However, Bakun branched out and acquired a brass mouthpiece company. Uh, this is something that we'd always wanted to do. And so I was very deeply involved in, in that acquisition and then uh, the product development and the launch of it, uh, of which, Sean, you've helped significantly with too. So that has been um, you know, the main shift for me. I am spending a hell of a lot more time with my family, uh, with my three kids, which... Um, is needed and it was needed and more time with my wife and it's been really nice to just see them grow up the last few years i mean they've had their own struggles with covid and obviously being homeschooled and all but aside from a few months of slowdown for bakun in terms of our staff working remotely i came back to an office that was pretty much the same before we left with the exception of me now being in the office all the time and taking all of my Zoom meetings or meetings by Zoom. So for me, that's been the biggest change prior to COVID. Um, it was just focusing on our product quality and product development, working on the bass clarinets, working on the Vocalese mouthpiece project, which we can talk about if, if uh, you think that it's a value for the listeners in terms of how that project got started. It was basically a conversation between me and Richard Hawkins um, while I was on a layover in Denver. <laughs> and that was quite an interesting conversation, and that sort of spun up the Vocalese project out of nowhere. As usual, I talk to a lot of artists, a lot of Bakun artists, and a lot of artists that want to play Bakun that are playing other brands. I'm always on the phone. I'm always on text. And Richard Hawkins and I have always been very close. Um, and I was just chatting with him. And he had decided after Zinner made the announcement to close that he was going to close up his mouthpiece business. For a lot of people, uh, they might know that Hawkins actually brought Zinner to North America many, many, many years ago. It was on a tour. He was in Germany, I believe it was with Eddie Daniels and uh, several other artists and people. And he found Zinner in some music store. Uh, Zinner Mouthpieces reached out to them, started working with them, ended up bringing Zinner to North America. And uh, he had a really good relationship with them. And he was hand refacing their mouthpieces based on his designs, uh, the molds. And he built a huge following. I mean, he really is the Casper of his day. And Richard and I were, were talking about it, and he said, you know, I'm going to hang it up. I'm going to shut it down. I'm, I'm going to stop making mouthpieces. I'm going to take a hiatus, and then we'll think about what to do. And I said, okay. And a couple months later, that was in June, uh, that we sort of let everything rest. And... Um, I was on this layover in Denver. I remember it really, like, very, very specifically. I was eating a piece of pizza. I was chatting with Hawkins, um, sort of in between discussion points. And I said to him, what, what would it be like if, if we made a mouthpiece? What would it be like if we machined a mouthpiece from start to finish on one of our nine-axis CNC machines in a what's called done-in-one process? Now, a lot of other manufacturers make CNC milled mouthpieces. What they typically do is they load up the mouthpiece on one side and they machine part of it and then they take it out and touch it up and then reload it on the machine and then machine the other side. And this was something totally different. We knew we had the technology to do it. And truth be told, we pretty much had done it. We were about 90% there, 95% maybe. But that last 5%, it's like 150%. Uh, there's just so much extra work to do. So Hawkins is like, well, if you're already kind of there, have Jer, who Jeremy Bakun is uh, my cousin and Maury Bakun's son. Um, Jer runs the operations for Bakun. He is the VP of Ops, and he is also the person responsible for engineering, manufacturing, CNC development, all of that kind of stuff. So I said to Jer, can you run up one of those mouthpieces you made a few years ago and kind of put to rest? And he was like, yeah, sure. So he ran it off and he sent it to Hawkins. And that was, it was just quiet. And then Hawkins sent me a text. He's like, I think I can work with this. And that was 
the start of a very close relationship. Hawkins was up in Vancouver quite often, flying back and forth, working with Jeremy, fine-tuning the mouthpiece. And from that moment, I believe that was in August um, of 2018, to the launch, which was April of 2019, we finalized this mouthpiece and uh, launched it to great success. I mean, we have sold tens of thousands of these mouthpieces. We've expanded to the bass clarinet, uh, finalizing the E-flat mouthpiece right now. We've joked about doing a contra and even going to uh, A-flat sopranino. Uh, and who knows what other models we're going to be making. But it's it's been an incredible experience. And during that time, um, I've also become really close with Richard. I, I chat with him pretty much every day, um, I would say. I text multiple times with him or have a phone call. Um, sometimes business related, but not always. And we decided in partnership to brand this the Vocalese mouthpiece by Hawkins and Bakun. So it's not just a Bakun product, but it's a Hawkins product because he is a great mouthpiece craftsperson. He really is. He's, and not only that, I, I wish the listeners would have a chance to hear him play more. He is a virtuoso, uh, if a lot of you don't know. I mean, he debuted, I believe, with the, let's say, the National Symphony with Rostropovich conducting when he was 19 years old. I mean, he is a prodigy of the clarinet, but he has made his decision and his career based on teaching because it's what he loves to do. Um, and he teaches at Oberlin Conservatory in Ohio, and he's built an incredible life for himself. Do you think that so much of what ended up coming out of this was the modern technology, which has you know, now been available to people and that Bakun sort of had on hand that enabled this project? Or like, how would this have looked different before? Well, Zinner really was one of the few main mouthpiece makers that was making what we call OEM, original equipment manufactured mouthpieces or parts, private label for mouthpiece makers. So previous to, um, to Vocalese, we would order Zinner mouthpieces in certain sizes. They had different facings, different lengths, different uh, bore sizes. So we would order them, and then we would customize them ourselves, and we would put the MOBA name on it. We did that for a number of years, and it was very successful. They were great mouthpieces. But what it allowed us to do, and other manufacturers, is to look outside the proverbial box and say, what else is there? And other manufacturers have come to the table in terms of CNC machining their mouthpieces. And this is nothing new for a lot of, of manufacturers. Look at the Sax mouthpiece market. I mean, it is crazy uh, how many Sax mouthpiece makers there are, especially for um, metal mouthpieces and uh, non-classical Sax mouthpieces. So it's just something that we knew we could do, but knowing our technology, I mean, Maury has always been adamant at investing in technology, investing in people, investing in the skills to advance what we do. And as he likes to say, take that, that game to the next field, take it to a different field. So by working on the mouthpieces, the same way we, we attacked the development of our clarinets in just a completely different way, for those of you who have ever tried a Bakun clarinet, it's not like your traditional clarinet. It's different, and there's a reason for it. So we did that with, with Vocalese, and we basically wiped the slate clean, and we said to Hawkins, what would it be like if you had your mouthpiece? Any mouthpiece you could design from, from um, stem to stern, what would it be like? And we didn't stop. We didn't roll it out until it was ready. And as you know, Sean, uh, because you were involved in that, I mean, there were a lot of back and forth discussions. There were uh, nomenclature discussions and how many models are we going to roll with? And Hawkins said, I only want to do three. And initially there was only three. So we called them R, G, and H for Richard Grant Hawkins. Um, and then came the R, G, H2 or R2, G2, H2 to uh, account for the 442 tuning. And then we onboarded the CG model for Karada Giafredi, who is um, a phenomenal artist and, and a, a very close friend of our families and has been very supportive of us over the years. And then finally, we expanded to the Z model, or the Z model, as our American listeners would know it. 
Uh, and that was for the European market that wanted a really open mouthpiece. And, and when we called it the, the Z model, it was because Hawkins said, I am never making a mouthpiece more open than this. This is the end of the road. It's the end of the line. It's the end of the alphabet. And that's how the Z came to be. Aren't you glad you guys went with uh, letters instead of numbers for that model? Eh? There's no... <laughs> we would have run out of space to engrave it on the table. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's such a great story. It's always funny to think about, you know, the stuff that happens kind of behind the scenes because, you know, people who are buying products don't always realize that sort of thing. You know, why was something called the way it was or why is it marketed this way or why does the picture look how it does and all this kind of behind the scenes sort of stuff, you know? Well, that's something that I would ask you. I mean, when you joined Bakun, one of the questions I teed up for, for this discussion was, um, do the listeners know what you do on a day-to-day basis? I mean, have you ever talked about that? Have you ever talked about how you came to Bakun and the stuff you now see behind the scenes that maybe not took for granted when you were a student, um, but I know you were a fan of Bakun before you came to work with us. What has it been like for you coming to work for a, a company in the music industry? It's actually been really interesting. And it's funny because my first experience with the Bakun clarinet was um, only a few months before I got the job here because I remember I picked up a used protege that was basically in brand new condition. And uh, it was a Coca-Cola one with the gold keys. So I always thought that looked super cool. And you know what? I like cool, flashy things like that. And I was teaching a lot of clinics at the time too. So kids love that too. They love the fact that I had, oh, it's, is that real gold? I mean, is it, wow, what kind of wood is that? They loved it, right? It inspires them to, to want to play. And, and I guess the thing about Bakuna I always liked is the same thing I've always kind of liked about Apple is that they seem to be sort of changing things in the industry and shaking things up a bit and doing things a little different. And uh, I don't know, I like that vibe. So I got this clarinet and my mind was kind of open to, wait a second, this is a intermediate clarinet that plays pretty good. <laughs> and uh, I started looking more into the brand and things like that. And we had chatted on the podcast and, uh, and I guess I wasn't really sure what to expect from the job, but there's been so much interesting stuff behind the scenes sort of being a part of like for me a real highlight has been being part of the photo shoots and planning the website and and I don't know if people know but like yeah all the pictures and stuff like I'm on the other end of that clarinet holding it in the air for the photographer <laughs> and my arm is sore just as a note <laughs> after a $34 manicure yeah sorry yeah I mean yes yeah, <laughs> manicure that we paid for <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny things like that two people don't consider like yeah I had a, a manicure for the, the the photo shoot and those are my hands on the website too it was funny because, I mean, I never thought that part of my job at Bakun would be getting a manicure for, for pictures to be taken. But if you think about it behind the scenes, it makes sense. Your hands need to be, you know, trim and looking good or whatever for, for that kind of thing. But the average person doesn't, doesn't have that thought. So a lot of the planning and things are, are really quite interesting. It's a really good point. You know, and something that I think about often, the, the story of how I hired you or how you came to work for Bakun is is really one that I think is so it's so applicable to everybody's life is that you never know where an opportunity is going to come. It's you never know where what you have done in the past, what relationships you have or have struck or words that you have said will come back to help or potentially hurt you. In your case, you had interviewed somebody and I was calling you, having known you and, and uh, been on the podcast, I actually called you for a reference. And when I told you what this job was, you're like, wait, I, I'd like that job. And before we were off the phone, I had your resume in my hand. We hired you within two days. I remember that. It was super fast. Our HR person got in touch with you. She interviewed you. I had a call with you. And we were locked and loaded. Uh, and you started a few weeks later. And you've been with us ever since. And, you know, it's been a pleasure to work with you. I have learned so much working with you. I mean, you are so multi-talented. And that's something that I don't, I don't think that the listeners know about you um, or I can appreciate. And, and, I, and I don't want to be rude in that comment, but the amount of work that goes into creating a podcast, editing it, getting it out there, promoting it, it's, it's huge. It's massive, and you are so dedicated to it. And along those lines, you've done the same work for Bakun. I mean, if you've been to the Bakun website, if you're a listener, and you've been to the Bakun website, you see Sean's handiwork. You see all of the effort that he puts into it. And what you're, you are seeing is the website that we want you to see. You're actually not seeing 
all of the other websites that Sean is doing for Bakun, such as Lasky or our European website or a Canadian website or the global website or our soon-to-be Australian website. These are all things that are geo-tagged and cached um, that you view based on your ISP. And I think, Sean, you just do an awesome job of managing that, managing the email marketing and everything that goes with it because you're so passionate about it and you have a great eye for attention to detail. And you mentioned Apple and we always talk about that when we, you and I have our design meetings and our weekly calls as well. What would Apple do? You know, what would Steve Jobs do? And you are that voice of reason. It's like, well, if Apple's not doing it, then we're not doing it. And I'm like, yeah, you made your point. No, thanks. I really appreciate that. And you raised an interesting point that those listings should take into account too, is that I remember when I was a student, I was working in a Mac computer lab and uh, that was my job. You know, I'd go to rehearsals and I'd go work in this computer lab for a few hours and help with tech support and remote system monitoring and installing software on workstations, about 50 of them and that kind of thing. But I remember back in the day, I told someone that that was kind of my summer job or my part-time job in music. And they were like, oh, what are you doing? That's such a waste of time. You should be out at the BAMP center, you know, getting your chops up and blah, 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 blah. And in a way they weren't wrong because if you want to become a sole performer, that is kind of what you want to, should be doing. But for me, I mean, all the other stuff that I did, extracurricular um, work kind of things always fed back into what I was then able to do later. So like, if I didn't have that tech experience and experience with websites and, and working, you know, with those kind of things, I'm not sure I would have been a good fit for this job, you know? So whenever you're in that kind of situation, especially as a student, like take the jobs you have, and instead of being disappointed that you're not where you want to be, think about where those jobs might help you in the future. There's a lot of players too, who never thought they'd be working on YouTube full-time in 2020. And, you know, any tech experience you had will really help you out nowadays, you know? Well, not only that, I mean, look at the pandemic. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't want to uh, cause alarm, but, you know, there's all these little cottage industries and, um, and people who are just like popping up with things that they've learned how to do at home or, you know, for example, orchestral players who have pivoted to different working opportunities or people that have decided to start up their own podcast or their own YouTube channels during uh, COVID. You know, and I just want to call out again, and this is not to stroke your ego, uh, but this is just <laughs> a fact is that, you know, you were the originator in this um, and you have, you know, by far the most um, episodes, but also just the most diverse content. And that's what I really loved about um, sponsoring the, the Clarinate podcast, but being on it as well and, and listening to it. I mean, as you know, I'll listen to episodes, uh, even if it's not a Bakun artist, I'm still interested to listen. And in working with you to take on the role of guest host, I wanted to offer something different in terms of what I see as a need in, in the clarinet market. Um, one that is focused on, let's call it outliers, topics that are totally different, things that we would never consider to be a topic just because it's so outside the realm of, um, of clarinet playing but I find them fascinating and I hope other people do too. So I want to take a, a second and let the listeners know a little bit about you outside of Clarinet um, and outside of Pacoon. What people might not know is that you are a huge car fanatic. Um, and we often talk about it because my son, who is nine years old, um, is a huge lover of cars as well. And so you're always sending me pictures to share with Noah and he loves seeing them, loves seeing your cars. But you buy and sell and trade and, and scrounge for cars more than any human being I have ever seen, aside from Jay Leno, perhaps. Um, so I'm curious to know, how did this love of cars come about? I mean, is it a lifelong thing? Is it recent? And what are you currently driving? Because that changes all the time. Changing tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> So I've been interested in cars, specifically like Camaros, since I was really young. I'll never forget the day we were driving downtown Calgary here, and uh, we were under this specific overpass. I always remember it because we pulled under this overpass, and I saw this car. I was in the back seat of our van, and I'm like, oh my God, what is that? My dad said, it's a Camaro. And I was like, man, that's the coolest looking car I've ever seen. It was a 1994 or six, maybe, um, dark red, kind of maroon 
color. It's su super cool, like just the way the swishes and the shapes. I I'd never seen a sleeker car, and I since that day was like obsessed, like drawing them, painting them, like buying books and reading about them, and and uh, always thought I would never own one though, because I just never thought I would really do that. Um, fast forward a few years, we had a I just had like run of the mill Mazda three cars or whatever, just to get around right. But we needed a second car, and I was like just looking around a lot and. I found this one that must have been priced wrong. Like it was a really great price. And long story short, there was some altercation I had with the sales manager. He was really rude to me. And, and they ended up just saying like, look, we feel bad. What do you got to do to, what do we got to do to get your business? So I just named them some crazy low price and let me take the car. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, if I can get my dream car basically for less than a Honda Civic, <laughs> like I'd rather drive that. So I didn't plan on selling that car right away. Um, I drove it for about a year and a half. It was a white 2018 Camaro really gorgeous. I love the, I love the white. I always like the white after that though, the pandemic hit and I was, things were a little uncertain. I didn't really need two cars. I mean, so I was like, you know what, I might as well sell it because the market's up. So I actually sold that car and made money on it, um, which was bizarre. That doesn't normally happen to people. But then I was looking around and uh, I've just noticed a couple ads for ones that I'd wanted in high school that were like a 2001 kind of model. And uh I didn't really want a car that old because, you know, the maintenance and it's not really that safe and all these kind of things. But, but I found a really good deal on one that I couldn't pass up. It was basically brand new. I mean, when I got in it, I felt like I was at a showroom. It was a really kind of life moment <laughs> to, to just even sit in it and own it and, and, you know, just even see it. I would have been happy, but I, uh, I bought it and um, for a really good price and took it home and it only had like 50,000 kilometers in 20 years. Amazing car. But uh, I loved that car. But as I drove it over the summer, I was kind of like, you know, I've got a kid. She does like it in the back, but I'm worried about safety. I can't drive this in the winter. It's too kind of special and rare. It deserves a different kind of home right now. And so I was like, you know what? I had my fun with it. Let's see if I can get what I paid. And so some guy offered me 50% more than I paid for it. So I sold it um, only after about five months. But you know what? I look at it. I got paid for five months to drive my dream car. And hopefully I'll own one of those again. <laughs> so then I've just been kind of looking since then. And I found just this week, actually, another kind of good deal um, on one that I like up in Edmonton. I'm going to go pick it up tomorrow. But it's another Camaro, but it's, uh, it's basically the same as my last one, except it's a manual with a track performance package on it. So I'm excited about it. <laughs> but uh, I've always liked the Camaros. I can't really explain the obsession, but people are like, well, why don't you get a Corvette? Why don't you get a Porsche? Why don't you get whatever? And I don't know. I'm just into the Camaros. <laughs> so aside from cars, the listeners might also not know that you have another podcast that you do. You are, outside of classical music, a massive Radiohead fan. I would say a groupie would probably be the more appropriate word, although you're not really flying around and like hanging out backstage like everybody else or trying to get backstage at least. <laughs> although I'm sure you have. But... Um, Tell us about Radiohead. How did that happen? I mean, was it just love at first listen? No. And that's what's funny about Radiohead for me is that uh, at the time I was actually a really big fan. This was in high school again, but I was a really big fan of, of uh, I was in band. I was a band nerd, I guess, <laughs> listening to a lot of like orchestral band type of music. And uh, if I listened to pop music, it wasn't very much. And it was usually like movie soundtracks and things like that. I don't know. That's kind of weird listening habits for a, 17, 18 year old, but sure. But anyways, I was becoming a fan of this band called Matthew Good Band, which in Canada is kind of like a national, he never really got famous outside of here, but and he's had his issues over the years, but really interesting kind of music and songwriting and really great lyrics and great singer. I always found it really compelling. And uh, I felt like I discovered like this really sort of special music that as a Canadian was like kind of unique to us. And I was sort of like protective of it. <laughs> so I, I was at the record store one day and I'd consumed all of his records. People listening might not know this, but you used to go into a store and buy music. How crazy is that? And if they don't have it, you can't listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> totally. How weird is that? Right. Anyway, but I went into the store um, and I was like, well, I guess I've consumed all his records. I mean, you only had about four or five albums out at that point, maybe. And uh, I went up to the guy at the counter, which also you do before Spotify playlists, you just trust the shaggy haired guy at the counter. <laughs> and I said, Hey, like, what else might I like? I like this guy and I'm not really into pop music other than that. He said, well, you might like Radiohead, but we only got this one. And he passed me this, this disc and it was uh, okay. Computer, which if you're listening is kind of a uh, uh, alt rock kind of late art, rocky somewhat album. 
anyway, I went home and listened to it and I actually really didn't like it. I was like, oh man, this guy sounds like a chicken. This is kind of tacky. Oh, I'm so much happier that Matthew Good still is better than this. Good for me. <laughs> but as I often did, because back in the day, if it was nowadays, I never would have listened to it again. But back in the day, if you invested $20, $25 in a CD, you owed it to yourself to listen to it because otherwise you're going to trade it in for 10 bucks at a loss. And that was kind of stupid, you know? So I owed myself a few more listens and uh, about the third or fourth listen through suddenly it just struck me. And I was like, wait a minute, there's some really interesting rhythms. These harmonies are kind of really also neat too. And one of the things I love about Radiohead that, that persists through most of their music is that uh, it's a grower. Like you don't necessarily like it the first time you have to listen to it five, 10, hundred times. And, and every time you do that, a new sort of layer unfurls. And it's really weird because I don't know how you can listen to something a hundred times and still hear something new. And that's, to me, that's bizarre. And a lot of people are like, oh, well, it's kind of depressing and it, it doesn't really have a tune. It's not catchy. And I guess they're not wrong. Um, but to me, there's just something really interesting about the, the song structure and the, the levels of layers in the music. And uh, yeah, just really interesting to me. I don't think that's unusual. I mean, especially in classical music. Um, yeah. Our listeners probably don't know that I have a master's degree in opera. Um, and while not a formal clarinetist, uh, I've been known to pick one up from time to time. Mary Bakun was my clarinet teacher when I was in elementary <laughs> school. Um, but uh, she'll probably deny it if anybody asks. And then I pivoted to brass instruments. But I got into singing in my late teens and really focused on opera through college and then into graduate school and performances thereafter. But when you listen to an opera, you, I mean, I've seen Tristan on Zelda at least a dozen times. Uh, I've seen it at the Met, San Francisco. I've seen it uh, Seattle. And every time I see it, I hear something different. I appreciate something different. And it's no different than, you know, a Beethoven symphony. I, I mean, a huge fan of Beethoven and Bach. And I can listen to those pieces over and over and over again. And I just find something different to appreciate each time. And that always brings me back. This morning, I was listening to Janacek. And I'm like, what the heck is this piece? This is insane. And I knew this piece, but I didn't know it. And that's something that um, obviously you found with Radiohead that just keeps you coming back for more all the time. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because it's one of the problems with classical music being branded to the society is that they say, um, if you want to relax, put on relaxing classical music, you'll, it's never relaxing if you're really listening properly or you're listening to something that's actually of any interest. I mean, it might be nice to put on adagio for strings and, and cook dinner if you're in a very romantic mood or something. But, but um, there's a lot of classical music that's very tumultuous and many, many layers. I mean, Mahler, Tchaikovsky, Beethoven. Um, all the operas and things like we're talking music that's very heavy and and you can't just put that on while you do your studying you know but then pop music gets kind of the same bad rap as people are like well i want to listen to it at the gym well sorry but you can't listen to motion picture soundtrack at the gym it's a song by radiohead but radiohead's interesting because their their guitarist actually has a um he's not classically like educated in the university but he is classically trained and as a side job he actually writes movie soundtracks and um and symphonic pieces and has his own classical record label, which is something a lot of people don't realize, but, but strangely enough, Radiohead, even though they have all this kind of classical like layers and influences and things like that, one of the things that boggles me, and I'm, I'm going to ask the band about it if I ever can chat with them about it, but um, they never go past a normal song length. Only once have they done a seven minute song. And even that had three kind of parts that were almost unique songs, but they're not doing like what a band like yes would do with like a 20 minute, 25 minute, meander they've, they've kind of found this goldilocks point where they 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 don't push the boundary too far and it's just enough to make it interesting and, and compelling for for people which is also an art you know so aside from cars and clarinets and radiohead let's chat about your family for a minute i know you don't often share uh, a lot of personal things but i think it's really important for the listeners and those especially who support clarinate to uh, Patreon and, and support and um, what you do financially because, you know, it, it costs money to 
create these podcasts. I know you pay somebody to edit them, um, as well as you doing some of the editing work yourself and all of the hosting and everything that goes with it. Tell us about parenting. Over the past couple of years, you and your wife have welcomed now two children to the family. Um, what has that been like for you? It's been, at first it was going to be, I was scared it was going to be like totally overwhelming <laughs> and it was, and it is for a while, but you just change and kind of adapt. I mean, I think a lot of people are really afraid to have kids these days because they're afraid that they're not financially ready or they're not having the time or this or that or whatever. And, and uh, I think that in the past, people didn't really have that choice. Like there wasn't as many options to start a family later. Right. So everyone started a family earlier. Um, and so in a way, we were joking about this the other day, like, I wish we had kids and we were in our 20s, because like, I was up all night at that point anyways, doing, you know, partying or whatever. And, and uh, now I'm 35, I want to sleep, <laughs> but I can't. <laughs> so the energy levels are, are kind of different. So if, if you're younger, and you're thinking you someday want to have kids, I mean, start yesterday, because you, you need the energy. <laughs> That's for sure. But I think it's true, there's never really a good time. So you just got to, it's one of those things, you just you're going to figure it out on the way. Um, and everybody does. You have to, right? That's just kind of what life is. But it's been really amazing in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, it's kind of weird because my daughter, both of them now, actually, they, you think they were twins. We, They look the same. It's really weird. But they also both look a lot like me. <laughs> I, I would hope that they look the same. They have the same parents. At least yeah, I think they, they do. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, like, identical. Like We keep mixing them up and it's kind of weird. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they look like me. So it's, it's kind of weird because you see yourself in them a little bit. And uh, I guess what no one really prepares you for kind of is like the, the, the moments of parenting that are like really valuable. They're not things that you'd expect, like, you know, things like the first word you think would be the most memorable, but it's really more like the way things make you feel at times, you know, and I think that's been kind of the most interesting, like when we gave her her a guitar for her third birthday which is a kind of a big gift for a three-year-old it's on the wall over there i don't expect her to use it for a while but it's just like a cheap you know whatever but like just the way she was so excited about that was it was amazing you know i agree i mean being a parent of three kids so uh at the time of recording our kids are 11 9 and 7 and this year all three of them are on ice sports and as i mentioned earlier with with not having to travel with COVID, I'm now helping with the teams. I'm the assistant coach for my son's hockey team. I used to play hockey. I started when I was four years old. So a good old Canadian boy, um, born with skates on my feet. So coaching his team. And then one of my daughters, uh, the seven-year-old plays uh, in the female hockey team. Uh, she plays for the Ravens. And uh, she's just a monster. She, we call her Mega Beast. Uh, because she's a monster on the ice. And then my 11-year-old plays ringette, uh, which some of our listeners might say, what the heck is ringette? It is a, a sport that was originally founded in the 60s because girls couldn't play hockey. So they, they came up with a sport that's basically like hockey, but instead of a blade on the end of a stick, it's just a straight stick and then a ring. And, um, and girls and females and women played that. Uh, and some boys too. Uh, and now it's very gender fluid. Um, people, you know, of, of all ages and um, genders play it. And it's been amazing this year. My son, uh, he transitioned from playing ringette uh, for two years into hockey for the first time. He really wanted to be with his friends and play hockey. And I was on the bench for his first goal uh, right at the beginning of the season. And it was electric. I was like, get me that puck. I want that puck. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to frame that puck. And just to see the sheer elation on his face watching. I mean, he one-timed it. He, he's been practicing his slap shots, and he one-timed it so hard. I thought it was going to go through the net um, yeah. for a nine-year-old. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Uh, I actually haven't, you know, being me, I just haven't had time to frame it, um, as, as you know and, and our listeners will probably know. I carry a, uh, a lot of, uh, or wear a lot of different hats at Bakun. So, you know, there's no such thing as the average 40 hour work week for me. It's more like 80 or, you know, especially when I get your phone calls and texts, it's like 120. Yeah, it's been the so, <laughs> so I haven't had time yet, but I'm going to get there. It's sitting on my nightstand, this <laughs> giant puck. <laughs> it's got Bauer written on it. But um, I want to take you into a different topic. I want to take you into clarinet playing 
um, and where you see the clarinet world going. Um, you have a very unique insight because of your experience interviewing so many people in, in such a diverse background. What are your thoughts on the clarinet world? And I don't want to get political. I don't want to get specific. Um, but I know you have your own thoughts. And, I, and I'm curious, like, what do you see that is happening through COVID and, and now that, that potentially uh, we're coming out of it in the future? Yeah, it's interesting because I think that the writing has sort of been on the walls for quite a long time. I mean, arguably maybe 50, 100 years that orchestras are not going to be a sustainable way forward for most musicians, you know, and uh, especially the fact that, you know, back in the 50s and before that, too, there was a lot of people who were employed by studios recording records and and basically their day job was to come in and, you know, sight read gigs. And there wasn't just more symphony orchestras, but there was more like all kinds of different bands you could play in or orchestras and things like that and actually make money or a living recording, playing the wind repertoire is much bigger than most people realize as far as like studio and commercial music and musicals and opera and orchestra. There's, it can be so multifaceted, but nowadays we're in kind of a very unique situation where the only people who get those kind of jobs, especially the big jobs are this, the, it's like winning a, a seat, not a seat, but a seat, what would you call it? A hockey team, um, a position on a hockey team, NHL. I mean, how many people play hockey? How many people are really going to get in the NHL? It's an extraordinarily small number. You know, I feel like that's what orchestras have unfortunately become for anyone who's not recreational. That becomes a problem because you're, I don't want to say pigeonholing, but that's kind of what it is. You're focused. So to get there, you have to focus so intently on what you want to the exclusion of all else. And if you don't get there, a lot of musicians face incredible disappointment and confusion because maybe they've spent five years flying around auditioning and hoping to play with the, you know, two or three degrees they have in an orchestra. And now they're kind of stuck. So I don't really know what that means for orchestras, but I think that what that means for clarinet players is that if you're not sure hundred percent in your heart that you want to play in an orchestra, you have to consider that you're not going to, because you won't. You won't play in an orchestra if you're not 100% dedicated full-time, especially a good one. It's not possible because for every person like you who's not 100% there, there are 10 who are 100% there, and even they might not get the job, <laughs> you know? So for me, what I had to look at is I was really lucky because when I came out of university, the reason I didn't go get a master's right away is because I was subbing almost every week with our local professional orchestra to the point where it was like, I, I don't know, I was going there like almost every week, several times. And it was, it felt like my job really for a little while. Um, and that was due to a couple of things. Like the one person hurt themselves, one had surgery and there was a shortness of subs that year. So it was a kind of a perfect storm that I lucked out, but I got to play a lot for two or three years. Um, and you'd think that that would have really inspired me to go further, but I was kind of starting to see that it wasn't for me. And I think that for a lot of clarinet players, there's a certain sense of shame in that. It's like, wait a minute. I got my degree in this. I, I thought that'd be my job someday and I have to like it. Right. <laughs> and I just, I didn't really, I mean, it was kind of boring. You get there. It's the same music every year. I mean, how many times if you play in an orchestra for 40 years, are you going to play the nutcracker? You know, you got to be that kind of person. They don't really prepare you for that element. So I was very fortunate and happy with the fact that I had also been interested in contemporary music and teaching and doing clinics and, uh, you know, at some point I eventually came up with a podcast idea, like I'm willing to do other things. And if you're not willing to kind of open up and expose yourself to opportunities that might arise that are actually of interest to you, um, you might not find them. And then you're going to face a lot of disappointment potentially if you don't get that orchestral job, which like I said, if you're not hundred percent sure, you really should start thinking of your options and, and what else your life could look like. There's a lot of people who don't play in orchestras who are really happy. I know a lot of them as Bakun artists. They do a lot of really cool stuff, perfectly happy, successful people in their own right, you know, and, and that you need to be open to the fact that that might be you. Morgan Nielsen comes to mind. Um, you know, every time I think of Man, her. She's a Balkan bump or something. Yeah, she has this this Balkan band, which she teaches. Uh, she lives in the San Fran, uh, the Bay Area, but she teaches. She travels all over the place. She does um, a lot of weddings, a lot of events. She's living outside of the box in terms of, you know, classical clarinet playing, although that's what she was trained in. And it's amazing. Every time I see a picture of her, she's got a smile on her face. Every time I hear from her, it's something positive. And 
you know, from from my own studies, you know, just to, to be transparent and vulnerable for a second, you know, I, I had a real moment in my life when I was going through grad school where my, my voice teacher had said to me, he's like, you know, I want you to go do your DMA, your, your doctorate after. And I said, but I don't want to. That's not what I want to do. I want to be a performer. And he's like, well, you got to think about that. And I went home to, to my grad studies apartment. I lived in Salt Lake City at the time. And I really thought about it. And I was like, what is it going to be like when, you know, I'm X years old and taking temp jobs and trying to make, you know, pay the bills and still doing auditions. And I don't want to couch surf and I don't want to be like that. Um, and I made that hard choice to say, you know what, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to, um, to go back to, to Bakun. You know, Maury had just started the business. He was about two years in and I was still flying back and forth between Salt Lake City and Vancouver to make barrels by hand before we had CNC machines and to help him with the business and to travel. I was still doing that pretty much full-time while I was doing my master's degree in the States. And I just, I said, you know what? That's not for me. I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to choose to be comfortable in life, to know what I want to do in terms of working for the business and to put my creative skills and my passions to that rather than auditioning and doing everything else and hoping that I make it. Um, and this was back in the day when in the very early days of Bakun where, you know, people were like, oh, you guys are a fad. You're not going to be here in five years. Uh, good luck. You know, nobody wants to buy a barrel for $200. Um, and I kind of look at that now. And uh, actually, when I was interviewing um, Jessica Phillips uh, last week for one of my podcast uh, guest hosted episodes, uh, she said, what is it like? And I said, you know, I don't regret it. Um, it was really hard to make that change, but something great came out of that, and that's that's Bakun. I mean, I've been here pretty much since day one. I took some time off for an MBA, um, and uh, it's just seeing the company in 21 years and seeing where we've grown and seeing where the clarinet world has grown and has changed, and you're right. There is a threat to classical music, and hopefully there will always be classical music, but orchestras are changing, careers are changing. Um, people are looking at academia now as legit options for careers or military, where in the past it was like, well, you know, I guess I'll go do that. But now it's like, no, I mean, during COVID, there are many educators who had medical and dental and full paychecks during that time, uh, and they were still teaching. And other people weren't. And it was really hard to see. It really was. Um, and, you know, so many people persevered and they're coming out of it. And, and it's just been fabulous to see and fabulous to experience. So, um, and I say fabulous to experience is in to see the human spirit, not to see other people suffer, but to see the positiveness that is from, you know, people rallying together. If I could add one more thing to this kind of concept, a lot, a lot of people listening are probably going, well, you know, that's not me. I'm going to stick with it and, and do this. And, and you might. Good for you. But one other thing you have to calculate or account for is the potential that you may not be able to, even if you want to. <laughs> and for that could be a multitude of things. I mean, maybe you have an injury like I had in 2016. That it was ironic because I'd always thought I would practice, practice, practice and audition for the actual chair in the symphony in my city. But the year the audition came up was the year that I destroyed my right hand. And so even if I wanted to, it doesn't matter how bad I would have wanted to, I couldn't play for six months. I couldn't play. And even now it's not the same, you know, it never really came back fully. And uh, that was one of the things that led me into the podcasting more seriously and eventually pursuing the job at Bakun and doing other things. But, but also, you know, having a family, that is something you want to be here for. You don't want to be at the concert hall every weekend, um, or maybe you don't want to be. And that could be another thing that, you know, throws a wrench into those plans. So it's not that ever, you know, I, I, every time we have these kind of conversations on here, I, I never want to say that there's anything wrong with those type of performing careers. All I'm saying is that like, you should make backup plans. And there's people who say, if you make a backup plan, it's planning to fail. That's really not very good advice <laughs> because you just got to be open to the idea that things might not go your way. And if they don't, what else can you do? What else are you interested in? How can you use your interesting musical experiences to help some other path? for example, you know, um, but if you do get to exactly where you want, perfect. 
this is kind of an odd example of something that, but I think that people should do this in their careers. I don't know if you ever went to back to kids for a second. Did you ever go to like a pregnancy or birthing coaching class with your wife? Yeah, we went to a few of those at the very beginning, just for the first kid. And then we were like, they, uh, yeah, we're, we're done here. Yeah, I don't need that. But one thing they did interesting, which I think that people should do as a career or about their career choice is what they sort of said is like, okay, they had the woman plan exactly how her perfect birth would go. Like, okay, I'd get to the hospital and I would do this and then I would do this and blah. they would lay it out. And they had the person come around and say, okay, so that's how you'd want it to go, right? And they say, yes. And they would take one of the things away. They'd say, what would you do if this happened? You know, maybe instead of giving a normal birth, you had to have a C-section. When their face would go, but I don't want that. And they'd say, well, you may not get that choice. What are you going to do now? How will your day look different? And they kept taking cards away until the cards were completely different. And they made everyone realize that like, wait, this could go anyway. It doesn't matter how you want it to go. <laughs> and I think that it would have been helpful as a career to be like, okay, you want to be an international touring superstar who does this, 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 and this records albums and travels. And what if you can't do this and look at the pandemic, it took everything away from everybody. It's so funny when you mentioned about like having like delivering and having kids, because we, we had that idea of this, this is what it's going to be like. And our first two uh, kids in two years apart, they were like nothing normal. I'm not going to get into details. <laughs> and then yeah. Jen, my wife, she's, for the third, she's like, can I just please, can I please just have a normal delivery? And the third one was like textbook. And it was, it was just, she was like, thank you. And we're done. I wish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know I'm finished, but there's a good lesson though with all that though, is that like, you know, things don't go how you want always. And if you can think and plan, you'll be, you'll have a leg up on it. Right. And, and schools are changing. You know, when I was doing my undergraduate degrees, I have several and several master's degrees. Um, when I was doing my degrees, they weren't focusing on the things outside of the school, outside of the classroom, out off the concert stage. They weren't talking about how to, um, how to save, how to, you know, manage your finances, how to promote yourself, how to do recordings, all of those things that are just so important today and you have to be a well-rounded musician and I often think about that and look there are so many amazing gifts that come out of of being a classically trained musician or, or a, a classically trained performer and then not going that route Ron Odrich who's a Bakun artist um, is one of the most respected periodontists in the world he was Bernstein's periodontist uh, and yeah, and he was really close with Bob Marcellus. Really, really, really close. Personally studied with him, the whole thing groomed by him. Um, and Ron decided to go to medical school and become a periodontist and a world famous one at that. Uh, he was also a writer, etc. I mean, a published writer of books. And he's had an amazing career and yet still has that t close, tight, connection to classical music. So I'm always fascinated by those relationships. Yeah. I mean, if you can enrich your life in different ways and, you know, get more of the things that for you mean something. I mean, one of my favorite quotes is by Glenn Gould. He said, uh, in a perfect world, there'd be no need for art because the artists would be um, living their life and their life would be art, something like that. And I always thought that was really cool. And I, I kind of take that into account. And I, I think about that every time I do something like, even planning my office, like this is my, this is my home. This is my work of art thing. You know, I do it how I want to do it. You know, you don't get control over much in life. So whenever you're doing things, you should think that way. Well, and you change up your office quite often. I mean, <laughs> I, you change I, up your I office about as much now. as you change your cars. I've I finalized it now, <laughs> I think anyways. <laughs> All right. Should we roll to a closing and then we'll launch into these lightning round questions? Thank you so much for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to check out our back catalog wherever you get your podcasts. There's over 160 conversations now with world-class clarinetists, and I think that there's definitely something for everyone. If you do want access to extended ad-free content, I invite you to join our community at clarinet.com join. You can get a free trial for 30 days with code TRYGOLD, that's T-R-Y-G-O-L-D, at checkout. And the gold edition is what I call the ad-free extended version of the podcast. However, for 
Joel's hosted or guest hosted content here, he has generously offered to sponsor the lightning round for everybody to preview. So today you're going to get a chance to enjoy that free of charge. So please do enjoy it. But if you want access to more content like this, please do consider helping to support the podcast. It really goes a long way to helping me bring this content to you. And I want to thank our over 60 backers that we currently have in Patreon and the uh, several more on the website who have just started signing up. So thank you so much for doing that. At this point in the show, I normally like to allow some listener sort of content to roll in. Some people have uh, you know, been listening and reminded themselves that they would like to come back on as guests after a time. So I'm really excited to bring back some conversations with uh, some people you might find familiar in the coming weeks and uh, some new conversations as well. One listener wrote in and asked if I could invite a very famous artist on the show who I won't announce yet because I haven't quite confirmed the interview date, but uh, I'm pleased to say that that spurred me to reach out to this person, and I'm now in the process of booking an interview. So don't think that your you know requests are not valuable to me. I do take them seriously, and uh, you know if I like the idea you bring to the table, I will try to pursue that as an episode idea. So thank you so much again to everyone for supporting the show, and I do hope that you enjoy the upcoming episodes. We're going to take a bit of a break from Joel's hosted content here. I've got a couple episodes that I've had in the can for a few months um, that I'm really excited excited to get out over the next couple weeks and then we'll dive back into some conversations that Joel will be hosting um, after that. So thank you so much again for listening. I look forward to seeing you next time on the Clarinet podcast. But don't go anywhere because there's a little bit of lightning round questions left with me right after these messages from our sponsors. Imagine a read that lets you focus on your music, lasts for months instead of days, and even saves you money in the long run. It's all possible with Legere Reads, the world's leading synthetic read brand made right here in Canada. The European cut read is preferred by Legere artists all over the world, including Eddie Daniels, David Schifrin, Carlo Giuffredi, and many others. It offers a warm, clean sound with a great ease of articulation and is now available for E-flat, B-flat, and the bass clarinet. Learn more at your local music store or at Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E dot com. The new Bakun Q-series clarinet features a completely redesigned bore inspired by the Bakun Custom Series clarinets. This means you can play and perform like the pros, but for less. Use code CLARINET at BakunMusical.com to save 10% on your entire purchase and try the Bakun Q-Series or Protégé Clarinet risk-free for 30 days. Just pay the return shipping if you aren't fully satisfied. Shop now at BakunMusical.com and use code CLARINET at checkout. All right, Sean, so the lightning round. I ask, you answer. If you could have dinner with anyone, living or deceased, who would it be? That's a good question. Um, I want to say Tom York because I'd love to just get him on my other podcast. He's the lead singer of Radiohead, but I have met him. So, and um, I'm not sure actually we'd have that much in common. So I actually would like to probably go with Glenn Gould. Oh, wow. That would be epic. Yeah. What's your non-classical desert island recording? Radiohead Kid A. All right. That was pretty fast. (laughs) Zero hesitation. (laughs) Everyone has a guilty pleasure. What's yours? Nacho chips and like Doritos. I just, since I was young, there's just with, no, with dip or without the chef here. Who's me makes amazing Dorito, like baked with um, <laughs> everything on it and stuff. And I don't nearly need the dip because I use so much cheese. <laughs> <laughs> the cheese is kind of the dip. But uh, if I do do dip, I'll sometimes actually even make like a little kind of bruschetta or something that goes with it with homemade guacamole. And, and uh, but if I'm in a hurry, sour cream will do some basic salsa. But yeah, I don't know why. Just something's wrong with me and just chips. I love chips. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. All right. What has parenting taught you? I think honestly, it's just taught me that life is about more than yourself. And I know that's very cliche, but it feels different now that there's a, a legacy beyond the stuff that I'm doing. It's kind of expanded that a little bit. And I don't know, you just think differently about the world and, and your choices and, and what things might affect other people and, and being more you know accepting. And I don't know. I think that's what it would kind of mean to me is like just kind of the, the legacy is, is different now and feels different. And I think it will never go back. You know, it stays that way now. Right. True. All right. What's one thing you've taken for granted? Taken for granted would definitely be uh, like physical well-being because after I hurt myself with that hand injury, it just really woke me up to like, it's a small disability really. Cause like I could still walk and whatever, but like, I couldn't type, I couldn't open a jar, I couldn't play clarinet, I 
couldn't do anything for six months. Um, I've never told anyone on the podcast this before, but I literally couldn't move my fingers for months. And my injury was so bad that, and I had such bad health treatment that the tendons had fused to the bone. So I had a extensive physiotherapy and stuff to re, you know, move the tendons and I should have had more surgery, but I elected not to. But the first time I actually played clarinet again after that, I cried. <laughs> really? It was just, yeah, it was so emotional. I just, I didn't know it meant so much to me. And it was like, I hadn't done it in six months. And it just was like, whoa, it just hit me <laughs> like that. You know, I, it was weird. My wife was there at the time too. And she was like, oh, that was interesting. I wasn't expecting that. And I was like, neither was I, <laughs> I don't know. But it makes me think of something Lori Friedman once told me um, back in 2015, when I first started the podcast, we were out for a drink somewhere in Calgary because she was in town. She mentioned something about like her story is that she ended up kind of going into what she did because she had a lip injury where a dog bit her face and she couldn't form a normal embouchure anymore. And so she was, that's why she plays so much like contrabass clarinet in such an interesting way and whatever. But uh, I had said that meeting for some reasons we were talking about like, what if you couldn't play anymore? And I was like, I'm not sure it would really bother me or whatever. And she's like, don't say that until it's taken away. And wow. uh, I was like, okay, noted. And a couple of years later, there I was. And I was like, man, it just, it just was emotional. You know, I just <laughs> shed a tear for coming back. You know, I remember when that happened. Yeah. Yeah. It was bad. Yeah. Really bad. So yeah, you don't take your health for granted or your physical well-being because like not everyone gets to have two arms. <laughs> it makes you realize how lucky you are when things are working. Totally. You know, so what's the best advice you've never been given? I would say financial advice. I have a, a friend who is a multimillionaire now, and he's where I get a lot of my investing and car flipping ideas and stuff from because he's like, look, if you're not willing to risk things you won't make things right and and he's the kind of guy who buys three four or five cars a year too and in the past year he's owned a porsche a ferrari whatever he's picking a new lamborghini huracan this week or something like that he's loaded right <laughs> but he's also in medicine and he's he's doing really well but he makes very good investment decisions very good car you know decisions things like that like he's always making money but i lived with him he was my roommate for a couple of years and uh, even back then we were just doing our thing and he was always like leaving the house to go off to his job, which was working at a casino. And uh, he was so smart. He always saw money as just numbers. And so if you look at money that way, it kind of changes the game of money. It's like, well, it's really just collecting numbers. <laughs> and I wish that that had kind of stuck with me more earlier. And I'd had, you know, if I'd bought Apple stock instead of my first Apple computer, it would have been crazy, you know, but he thinks like that. You know, he'll make that thought like, oh, I could do this instead of that. And it turns into that. And he's really thinking down the road and investing and all this stuff. And musicians don't think enough about that stuff. And they should, because you can play the game too. It's just numbers. Truth. <laughs> What's your go-to scale or study? Everybody's scale has got to be that big, long F major, right? <laughs> when you just go <laughs> all the way up and test that things are working. And I usually bust out a couple of chromatic things after that like everybody else. <laughs> I asked Eddie Daniels that same question and he was like, open G Joel, open G is all you need. <laughs> and he just did it right in front of me. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> okay, Eddie, you, you made your point. He's like, really? What, what else is there? Just open G. <laughs> he just, yeah, he likes that. I don't know. It's true. Actually though, some of the noodling gets a bit much. Like you go to clarinet fest and you can tell who's actually serious by how few notes they're playing. You know totally. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Play a couple of notes. They're listening how it's responding. And then you got the people who are like four or 45 octave C scale, you know, totally. So not playing. <laughs> or, or like, uh, now that, that I'm in the brass world, um, just people blowing, just blowing as hard as they can, like yeah. high C's thinking they're Maynard Ferguson. I'm like, no, that's just a, you're not Maynard and B there's just no value in that. Right. So if the pandemic taught you anything, what is it? Uh, I think it's that we're still living in history. I know that's a weird thing to say, but I've only had that thought a couple of times in life. And what I mean, I guess, is, you know, when you're reading a history book and you're like, that's crazy. I can't believe that happened. And like, it just seems bizarre. There's so many years that pass in between big events that that doesn't seem like reality anymore. But a big one for me was 9-11. When that happened, I was like, what? Like, that is crazy. And there's been a couple other smaller things that kind of hit like that. But this hits like that. This is something that you'll read about in history books and be like, what on earth? How did people even, like, what? So 
I think that that's the thing that made me realize is just like, we're still living in history. Anything could happen. And uh, we're also fortunate for the level of peace and security and prosperity that we have, because that could also be taken away or go away or who knows, you know? Totally. What's on your nightstand? My nightstand is my Kindle, my iPod, or not iPod. What's this called? iPhone charging stand. That's actually it. I'm very minimal. We have a very minimal kind of like bed thing with these like slotted nightstands. And yeah, just keep that there. I like to have the phone near me so I can check my, my work emails at three in the morning when the kids get up crying, screaming. <laughs> Last question. What is the most interesting interview you've had on Clarinate or who is the most interesting interviewee? Current company not included. Jeffy. Yeah. <laughs> 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 That's a good question. It's sometimes hard to think because there's been so many of them now. Like there's, I think we're at like 170 or 80 interviews or something over the years. So I'm probably going to, you know, forget one along the way, but um, and it does depend on the day too, really. I think in some ways, Doreen Ketchens, because like, I think she was incredibly passionate. I think more so than people even can understand, like talking with her is like radiating energy. It's crazy. Have you ever seen her perform live? Not in person. So Maury and I were in New Orleans. We've been several times for, for business, but we were there for the NASMD, National Association of School Music Dealers event. They have a yearly event where um, the owners and reps from school music dealers come to a specific place and they uh, they learn and they, they attend this conference and then they party and, you know, go play golf or whatever. And Maury and I were there and we walked several blocks down and saw Doreen. This is before we knew her. And we were mesmerized. And we stood there on the street corner for hours. I'm totally not kidding you. And we put in a lot of money into her bucket. She didn't know who we were. We didn't talk to her about clarinets. That's that, well, that wasn't the goal. It was just to appreciate her artistry. And it is electric, is really the only way to put it. I mean, she is one of the most soulful people that has ever picked up a musical instrument. There's something about that kind of, you say soulful. I mean, I find that a lot of people like in America, one thing I like about Americans is they tend to be very much more passionate and honest about their passions. But that's especially true of like Southerners. I don't know, like people from that region, especially like they, they like what they like and they're going to cook you up with that big, what's that big thing called that with the, crawdads in it or whatever the jambalaya or jambalaya. Yeah, they're gonna cook up a jambalaya and have a party and you're invited and everyone's so great and i love life and i don't know i like that i like that kind of vibe it is awesome it is very awesome. different than here where we're all inside minus 40 and <laughs> <laughs> oh canada that's yeah, for sure. exactly right sean i want to thank you for taking the time to join me today for sharing your knowledge and your experience with our listeners i hope that they enjoyed a glimpse outside of the normal sean host of the clarinate podcast finally thanks to all of you our valued listeners for subscribing to the clarinate podcast and supporting sean's work as you've all heard it's truly a labor of love signing off from vancouver canada i'm joel jaffe guest host of the Clarinate Podcast.